0: the choices business leaders have now, and you know, in terms of remaining relevant, is do you wanna be part of shaping that future or are you just gonna be wait and be instructed by it?
1: Hi, and welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast where you'll hear real stories of trials and victories in business. I'm Jenny Harold, VP of Product Marketing at GTM Hub. Our mission is to prevent organizational hypocrisy. Inspired by the proven objectives and key results goal-setting methodology, GTM Hub offers the most flexible results management system for mission-driven organizations. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. Today, I'm joined by Peter Kerr, Managing Director of Oxen OKR. He's had the opportunity and privilege of working with senior executives from some of the largest, most well-known companies in the world. If you're a senior leader, you're going to want to tune in. He shares some incredible stories from his experiences with these leaders on how to maintain relevance in the market, how to work through political infighting, the need for human connection in a digital world, and how OKRs can help aid all of the above. Let's jump in. So, Peter, I am super excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being on Dreams with Deadlines. It's a pleasure.
0: No problem. I'm looking forward to it.
1: All right. So we always start with this question. Who's Peter Kerr and what's Oxen?
0: Um, well, I'm I'm the MD of Oxen Auxin and Oxen's an OKR coaching company. But if you want a little bit of a background as to my journey, as to why I ended up here, um, I was in IT primarily. I was an IT director for a large advertising group. And my passion's always been around digital transformation, people looking at technology in a really proactive, positive way rather than just seeing it as a cost on the balance sheet. So Mm. my task was really to get people excited within organizations. Uh, That led me to set my own software company up, which I exited uh, around about 2008. Uh, And since then, I've been a digital transformation coach. And what brought me slowly but surely to OKRs was a huge frustration at putting too many post-it notes on too many walls and not seeing anything happen. And getting really, really frustrated by that and working with some great people and great talent. So that set me on my journey to look somewhere else. And I looked at all sorts of things Hoshin Canrai, I looked at, at EOS, mm. looked at Covey's 4D. But these three little initials kept coming back and biting me, these OKRs. And uh, yeah, so I continued to work with that. We had the opportunity to experiment with some small startup companies, got some terrific results. And that gave us confidence to go forward. And, and and then, like many OKR coaches out there, we were all hit with a huge stroke of luck because uh, John Doe wrote a book. And in 2018, that transformed, really, OKRs from probably a little bit of a minority play in a lot of tech companies to something that was much more major. As Lots of CEOs all over the world must have read that book on holiday. And suddenly we got inquiries all over the world, and we've been on a brilliant journey for the last couple of years working with some huge blue chip companies all over the world and thoroughly enjoy it. Never had more fun working in my entire life.
1: I envy that. That's wonderful. And good for you all. That's awesome. So we're going to kind of roll into then some of the mindset, because I want us to start about talking through like the mindset of the senior leaders and the ones that are thinking through how to adopt OKRs. As an example, I think previously we had talked about A bank and the senior leader was depicting what their problems were right and he succinctly did it uh when you told me what he said i was like whoa it changed the game of the room can you talk through the mindset that he had and how he was expressing that to the rest of his team
0: sure i mean i think when you get to these top level um executive meetings sitting in the c-suite Uh, There's a lot of politics in the room. Um, There's a lot of egos in the room. There's a lot of things that can happen. But fundamentally, your friend is simplicity. And if you can get something down, distilled to something quite important about behavioral change, what are we going to have to do different? Um, And this conversation really centered around what they wanted from their customers. And primarily what they wanted from their customers was more custom. You know, they wanted a bigger share of their wallet, uh, like lots of us do. So that's not going to be an unusual conversation. The trickier question you need to ask, though, is why don't you have it now? Mm. And that's triggered some different sort of. And then instead of them thinking inwardly about, well, we just want to offer more products or change what we do in terms of how our cost structure is to drive more profit into what we're doing, they started thinking about the customer a little bit more around. And, and the breakthrough moment really in that room was when the chief exec realized we have to earn the right for primacy, which is how banks calculate how much money is coming through them. And that idea of earning the right, you can take that out of the room. You can communicate that to somebody who's never heard of OKRs and say, look guys, if we really want to please and delight our customers, we've got to earn that right. What are we going to do different to make them happy? And then suddenly that sets a whole trigger and a different sort of thinking around it. And I think that's when OKRs really do unleash a huge amount of potential.
1: And kind of in the same vein, right? Banks, we're seeing having to make a transition in the new marketplace, right? Brick and mortar banks are kind of, I mean, they'll be there, I'm sure. But when I was growing up, I remember my mom would have me in a car. We would go through the little drive-through. There was the teller in the window. And there was this like tube where you put in your checks or whatever and your cash or your slip. And then it would go through as a vacuum. They do a bunch of stuff and then they put it back and you pulled out, you know, and maybe it transitioned to now you have these machines that do that. That's changing, right? The things that we're seeing happen in the market are, if anything, accelerating. Like I had no idea that because of, you know, coronavirus, we were going to move away from cash that much
0: faster. Absolutely.
1: Right. And it's exciting.
0: It is. I mean, I think that it it goes back to a long time ago, I did an economics degree. uh, And part of my studies was we studied a candle factory. And what do they do? Well, they make candles. And we knew everything about this candle factory. And we studied the division of labor and, you know, Mm. marginal revenue, marginal cost. We use macroeconomics to look at things and microeconomics. And I remember we were in one seminar, and we were pretty fed up with this candle factory by the time we'd been right through it, to be honest with you. And our lecturer, and I always remember his name, Ted Hyatt, said, "So what business do you think this is?" And we said, "Well, it's a candle factory. It makes candles, you know." Yeah. And he went, and he just took a light bulb out of his pocket, and he goes, "What about this?" Now what business are they in? And you've got to realise they're in the business of making light, not making candles. And I think that's. That analogy is very true of what the banks are. What is the job to be done? What do you want people to do? You know, and, and I think there's a, that's where the rethink is. And I think you're absolutely right with the death of cash. Um, um, I was listening to um, the guy from PayPal, and he, he was saying this has probably accelerated it by five years. People aren't going to go back, and those behaviors are going to change. So having the flexibility and the agility in your organization to spot these things and be able to react to them, you know, it sounds slightly cynical, but sometimes strategies strategy is about getting it less wrong than getting it right. And um, and how quickly do you learn that you're doing something wrong in order to mediate? That doesn't change the general direction and flow of where you want to go. Your purpose, your vision, your values which are all hugely important. And I know we're going to speak about that a bit later, but, you know, culture here is so vital um, that you get that right mindset within your organization.
1: It is a shift. For a lot of folks, especially I think for older businesses that had a very top down, maybe a command and control type structure where people had to ask for permission to do things, you know, or check with someone beforehand because they were concerned about, you know, like, am I in the right? Am I wrong? What am I allowed to make decisions on? What am I not? That's tough. So, can you share a little bit about? You know, with the leaders that you're working with, the organizations that you're working with, what is that shift? What is that attitude or mindset that they need to have so that OKRs would be successful?
0: You use a really good word there, which was permission. I recently read a book called Turn the Ship Around. I don't know if you've ever come across it, David Marquez. And he was a captain in the US Navy, and he was given probably one of the worst submarines in terms of how it performed. To turn around. And the ultimate goal, the ultimate, their OKR, their objective was to be a good enough um, crew to take part in a NATO exercise. And they looked, they were miles off. And what he realized was after having quite a close escape when somebody'd taken directly his instruction and not really questioned it, was he, he put the whole ship in danger. And this got him thinking. So I'm coming to the permission word. So he replaced the whole idea of people asking for permission, instead, getting them to say what they intend to do and why. That's a very, very subtle change. And I I found that in OKR um, workshop sessions, a really good place to start. So you're not asking permission to do things. Tell me what you intend to do, and then give me a really good rationale as to why you're going to do it. And that stimulates a far better conversation. So I think when you have that sort of mindset, it's really, really powerful. So I think permission is a really interesting concept. And you're absolutely also right the, the command and control models gone so one of the big behaviors we want to unlock with OKRs is autonomy we want people to understand what they want to do but we want them really fired up for it we want them really excited when you come through the work in the morning or whether you sit at your desk or wherever you're going to complete your work you've got a passion for what you do but you have a clear idea I mean I was told off quite recently by um, a lady in South Africa because I uh, we were working with a bank and um I inadvertently said the word collaborate, and it's quite an overused word, and, but we kind of know what it means. But she told me, she goes, I hate that word. I hate that word, collaborate. I said, oh, okay, well, what would you prefer? She says, well, the way I want to run my teams to run, I want to run around coordinate. So she wants people to really decide what they're going to do on a Monday and then tell her what they've done on Friday. And the real purpose was they did an internal review, and they found that senior execs within the team were spending up to 27 hours in meetings a week. And the the vast majority of those meetings were update meetings. Oh. So... You know, a lot of these organizations, you know, we think we've really moved forward in lots of different areas. Um, I go back to the 1980s and I read Tom Peters's book, In Search of Excellence. And in there, he coined a phrase, uh, an acronym called DRIP, which is Data Rich Information Poor. And I'm not entirely sure we haven't actually crossed that Rubicon as we're taking our 20th century business models and putting them into the 21st century. I think we're still collecting an awful lot of data, but not particularly actually being agile enough to find the words and find the information we need to make better decision-making. So a lot of what we do as well is about unearthing good insights, good data, you know, and I think that's going to be hugely vital going forward.
1: I couldn't imagine having that many double-digit hours in meetings as a C-level. That's expensive. Absolutely. There was something that you brought up, I think, the first time we met, and I was like, this is super exciting, to the extent where I actually shared it with our chief of staff, I was like, what if we tried this? Can you share with, if you're willing, our our audience, what you proposed to folks that are used to the one hour meeting? Because that's what happens, right? You open up Outlook and it'll default to an hour meeting. And my husband always tells me, humanity seems to be this way, where if you leave a hole somewhere, everyone's going to fill it with stuff. It, you know, like if you give it enough margin, so if you have an hour block, they're going to fill it with an hour of stuff. If you, you know, leave a uh, a soda cup outside, inevitably it will be filled with trash. I don't know why this happens as humans. It's something that I see. Yeah. And ever, ever since we had that conversation, it happened. And so therefore... Like I thought the encouragement you gave to senior leaders about how to rethink their meetings and their meeting structures was fascinating. Can you, can you share what you promote?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of been talk about, I mean, I've been in offices where people don't put um, chairs into meeting rooms so you can stand, but really what my focus is on single topic meetings, Um, just pick one thing and isolate it down to 20 minutes or 15 minutes, but keep it at a much shorter cadence. And that, allows you really to stop these huge long retrospectives. It's another thing as well, when you, what I've discovered when I worked in, in, a, in a creative environment is if you mix too many things in a meeting, people change your mind. So if you have very mundane production issues, and then you also put creative issues in, into the same way. So you want somebody to come up with some really innovative ideas about how they're going to measure their progress. But at the same time, you're also getting an update on lots of health metrics within the organization. It doesn't stimulate that kind of thing. So keeping things much shorter. And then we've also got huge lessons to learn from delivering through things like um, Hangouts, Teams, Zoom, all of these different. What, why is everything an hour? I, I really do push that quite hard. You know, why does it take hard? And what I found is that it's it is just that habit, isn't it? It's the way that our diaries are set up. Yeah, I'm encouraging all my team now, and we, we think in 15-minute blocks. And if we can get two, a single topic covered, then we can always meet up again a little bit later on because they, the logistics of actually seeing one another or traveling from office to office or going around the country or around the world, well, that's changed. So I think how we use our time, how effective we are, is, um, is all up for grabs now. So I think those companies that embrace what's happened, COVID, and take those lessons and learn from them and make themselves better will benefit. Those that are just waiting to go back to the way things were, I think you'll struggle.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm rereading The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. And like the first chapter is know thy time and be able to be effective with that time. Because if you're not and you're an ineffective executive, I mean, it's it's such a waste. So... That requires us to not only be thoughtful about our own personal discipline, I think, as leaders, there are other things that we have responsibility for. And OKR is, I think, if if an organization thinks, oh, I can just write up my OKR and then share it to the rest of my organization in email, they'll get it and it'll be fine. And that's the extent of my communication, right? I I think you and I agree that that's bogus. Um, Not that anyone's doing that. But what would you say, based on your experience with the leaders that you're working with, because you work with a lot of them, uh, and some really, like you mentioned, blue chip, large scale companies, what what are you seeing out there in terms of leadership, and what is distinguishing the really good leaders from the ones that you're like, I'm not sure you're going to make it.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's a really interesting question. I, I think it's also a broader journey that well, a lot of us on is. Thinking more like a coach rather than thinking like a manager, Mm. and and really, coaching is about inquiry. It's not advocacy. You know, it's not me telling you what to do. And it it was. It's been a journey I've been on from because a lot of what I did was consulting. So people have a problem, they want you to come in, wave a magic wand, and fix their problem. Um, And in the early days, that was quite um, possible because. I sat with a body of knowledge and people need tasks completing, and it was far more efficient for them to bring me in to do it. But actually, it doesn't have a long-term view. The long-term view really is being more of a coach and teaching. So I think the leaders I see now that are having the biggest impact are the ones that are looking to influence through really clever questions and giving people room to do stuff, get them to find out and explore solutions. And I think the other side of it is we should never forget the power of narrative. You know, marketing people and brand people talk about this all the time about, you know, telling a good story in order to Mm -hmm. take that for granted. And that's something we probably learned, you know, back in the day when anybody's covered any marketing. But the same narrative needs to be applied to our strategy internally. You need that story. You need to remind people why they're coming to work. You need to get things So a lot of the times in our OKR sessions, I ask people to think when they're setting the objectives, think like a copywriter or think like a journalist, think like a headline. What would grab attention? You know, what would make you interested? It's back to that, you know, earn the right for primacy. You don't need to know a great deal about OKRs to understand what we've got to do is change what we're doing now in order to make our customers delighted. And so what can we do? What can we do tomorrow to make them more delighted? We recently worked with a a very successful fintech company. And we were going through, um, I think, quite a lot of soul searching about what we are and what we do and where we're going. And, you know, brilliant, brilliant group of people. Very, very honest and open. But, you know, we can tell. And I think we found this with a lot of OKR sessions. Just sometimes it's darkest just before the dawn. You know, sometimes you have to take yourself down to a place where you think this is going nowhere. I'm so frustrated to then a chink of light starts to appear. So what we found was that uh, uh, the CEO mentioned the word flywheel. And I think he took it from Jim Collins's book, you know, The Good to Great. So we kicked that around a bit and said, well, what does a flywheel do? Well, One of the main jobs of a flywheel is to start an engine. So really what they've done is built this stellar team that had all of this stuff going, but they hadn't started the engine you know, they hadn't really got going. So as soon as we said, well, how about our OKRs get the engine started? Suddenly everything started to flow. And that was something they could communicate with everybody else. That led to more thinking around how do we make the engine roll, which was about sales and marketing. You know, how do we get, how do we supercharge the engine? That's the next round of funding that they're going to go through in order to get the level of investment they need to realize on their strategic promises they've already made. And all of this start to flow. and. Energy happened, but it also gave them the narrative that could then go. And when you do your town hall, you have a story. It's not just here, we're going to give you a few sound bites from the company's annual report, or we're going to give you a select few slides that the Exco have looked at. This is much more about passion and human beings. And then I think if you don't engage people emotionally and get them fired up, then OKRs are just a framework. You know, they're just, you can just end up and up in your to-do list into a different format this is really about thinking about change so yeah i i love it when you get those moments because the feedback i get weeks and months later is you've transformed that business now haven't they've transformed their business you know that they've done it it's it's entirely them
1: and the the change really sounds like it's being able to really understand the problem statements in the business, right? And then bring everyone else along to understand it. And then there's like hope, right? Because it's in the form of a goal to say, I know what the issue is. We know what the solution needs to be. And guess what? The solution is you all. And this is how. This is how we're going to solve this problem together. And that's exciting,
0: because good word there together it's the it, it's the cross-functional again there are lots of overused words in in businesses it's cross-functional teams what does that mean well right, right. and I, I think where uh, a chief exec of a very large insurance company gave me my light bulb moment when we really? were, yeah we were, we were looking through and going through OKRs, and and they were all very good and I mean incredibly bright people and really enthusiastic and committed pleasure to work with but fundamentally he came back and he said, Peter, what you're saying to me is I need to create great objectives for this organization and then build a team around delivering on the objective. I'll come up with objectives at the high end of the company and then throw it into my existing organizational structure. Let me think about that for a moment. That's quite profound. Mm. I'm deciding, I'm being completely open-minded about where we're going to go as an organization. I realize that lots of things we're doing are wedded in the past and we need to go and embrace the future. And as a result, I'm willing to turn around and go, okay, now that we've decided what the, this direction of travel is going to be, and we're all enthusiastic, how do we build a team to make that happen? And that's completely different way of thinking about a lot of organizations. So when I see cross-functional teams working well, it's not just by calling them squads or coming chapters with people of similar um, capability. It's much more about getting behind that big objective. So it's more than just the structure. You know, I did kind of back to the overused Simon Sinek stuff of all finding your why. Your why within an OKR is to achieve those objectives and then finding the way to do it. You've got to perhaps loosen off the constraints of how you've been organized in the past and embrace something new. And I, when you start getting thinking like that, organizations transform really quickly.
1: Yeah, I was talking to a company once. I remember... I got some questions where they were like, Jenny, what you're suggesting sounds crazy. Basically is what they were telling me because they were like, does this mean I have to reorg? Like that's, like they were freaking out, Peter, on this this call and I was like, no, no. You can have your hard lines and your dotted lines and all that in your hierarchy because I think that there's a place for that. You know, people want to be able to, up level and then, you know, assume more responsibility, which means a title change. And then there's a reporting structure that happens with that. And that's fine. What I'm talking about is the way that you're working with one another, this coordination. And that is agnostic to the hierarchy and the hard and the dotted lines. It could be this person over here and that person over there in a completely different department. It could be four people in this one. doesn't matter. The idea is to rally them around goals that are as close as they can be to the organizational objectives and to give those teams, like you mentioned, like the room to be able to problem solve, which means that there's like, and I love this. I I remember talking, I was talking to Dan Montgomery about this. He calls it the, uh, the network of commitments. That's what he's talking about. It's not about the hierarchy. It's about how do you take that hierarchy and create a network of commitments to support what it sounds like this uh, This insurance, uh, you know, the leader of this insurance company was saying. It's like, I've got goals. We need to go fulfill those goals. How are we going to assemble what we need so that we can achieve it? Um, because, and I imagine for them, and I want to delve into this, what has worked for them before won't work anymore now, Right like you mentioned that you have some daughters that are going to come of age where they will need insurance they're not going to experience how insurance is purchased like i did like my parents did that's probably gone like they won't have the patience for that and i really enjoyed like your your thoughts around this uh, of this idea of relevance Can you kind true. of yeah, go I mean, into that
0: i think if you um If you take a lot of traditional businesses, they like what they know and they know what they like. And, you know, it's quite challenging when you have to change things. But if you take something like the insurance industry, the sophistication we're going to get of personalization, how we understand each other, how we understand what people do. We've got to get more sophisticated than just labeling us on a bunch of postcodes and a few demographic indicators in terms of age and everything else. has to be a lot more personal. But also what? My kids would never, for example, turn the TV on to watch a program at a certain time of the day or night. They expect on demand. So we're in a world that's around access, not ownership. A well, world that demands personalization, and we demand it really, really swiftly, quickly, seamlessly, frictionlessly. And I, and I think this this speaks to a larger issue around when operations and um, become bogged down with too much bureaucracy, and and people get I'm not challenged enough to change their thinking. And I work with a great coach who's part of our network now, um, Philip Philip Crocker. And he's got a fantastic word for this. He calls it conductivity. Conductivity. Yeah. So if you think about electricity, and basically electricity flows best when through things that have high conductivity. And that's what you need fast-performing teams to do, well-performing teams. You need this level of conductivity. And conductivity sits there at a personal level that we build rapport with one another, we have trust, but also it's a bit going back to that data side. Can we get hold of the data that we want? It's an interesting, again, one of the OKRs and another large organization we work with, something that challenged and made for behavioral change was we won't let the lack of data be an excuse. So not having the data can't be an excuse. If you can't have it, then your task becomes to find it right where it is don't just sit there and go oh we can't make that decision because we don't have the data that data is important we've got to do something about it and get it surfaced and i think a lot of us have probably been in jobs where we've sat there and go i've produced a lot of reports when i was an it guy you know i'd produce board reports and it was an output not an outcome i don't think anybody read it you know IT in the board meeting was the last thing on the agenda and everybody was already thinking about getting home or getting to the bar. So nobody really wanted to read this thing. So I said to my direct report, which was the finance director at the time, I said, I'm going to stop doing this. Instead, I'm going to wander around the agency and I'm going to ask all the department heads what bugs them the most about IT. And I'm going to put a report and I'm going to tell you what they've said. And I'm going to tell you what I've done about it. And that's going to be one page. And that was so much more effective. And then suddenly they were engaged. You know, they had a much more. So it wasn't me sitting there in my, you know, bond-like um, stroking a cat and controlling all of the IT within the organization. I suddenly became this figure that was accessible, that was open. And I'd just been more interested in what their pain were. You know, so this is that that outward mindset, start thinking about how you can help others and then you'll find that they'll want to help you.
1: I had a similar experience with our team where, you know, we were really optimizing for a specific persona and it's super clear in the, pro- in our experience. And, you know, I started thinking, I was like, you know, we need to be able to speak to this person in the organization. We need to understand them we need to talk to them. And so we did. We just we just did it the same way. We asked them the questions. We asked them, you know, what what is really irking you? What are your pains? What do you need? And we got such rich feedback, which we were able to come back, distill, analyze, and then similarly produce a very succinct analysis that we shared with the rest of my peer group. And everyone's minds were blown. Like we were like, whoa. Like this is next level, but it took an outward mindset. It took something where, you know, we could sit very similarly in our ivory tower, look at the data agnostic of talking to actual physical humans who actually have this pain and really start to connect the dots of, you know, here are the gaps in the experience or here are opportunities that we're not being able to capitalize on because we're not talking. There's no communication to the customer. And that is so important especially now when we know that relevance and like you had mentioned previously, like they, it's, I hate to say it, like we just don't have the patience. Yeah. We need, we want the accessibility. We want it now. And so the digitization, I think of every industry is what we're witnessing, you know, in this point in time, you know, cash being an example of that, right. We're going to buy stuff online. We're going to continue to do that at greater scales. There are even countries that are planning on when they will go completely cashless. What's going to happen to all of that part of society and all the jobs behind it? How are we going to transform the the work that was done there and then weave them back elsewhere, you know, into like our our constructs? And that's there's a lot of work ahead of us, I think.
0: Yeah, there is, and I, and, I, and I think the the choices business leaders have now, and you know, in terms of remaining relevant, is do you want to be part of shaping that future, or are you just going to be wait and be instructed by it? You can't sit around on the sidelines now. I think that there are so many lessons to be learned, but they haven't all been learned yet, and you can't rely on everybody else to go and learn them and share them. I think part and parcel of the. The agility of OKRs is allowing you now to an experiment to create whatever this new normal is meant to be. But it's going to be yours. and It's going to be different to somebody else's. And it's going to be based on your people and your team and your experiences. But it's about being courageous enough to go and experiment and take on some new challenges. And I think that's, to me, the opportunity. Everybody is, you can look back in history and people say, oh, this is the end of work as we know it. It's not. Just something else happens. Mm-hmm. Other stuff happens. You know, there'll be massive new industries around robotics. There'll be massive new industries around tech and IT. And and we've just got to make sure that we're creating a society in a world and educating the right young folk as well to come in and take those skills. I mean, you know, I think education is due a shake up. And children and young adults going out now to universities where they're actually not going to go and sit in lecture theatres for a while, they're actually just going to get it via Zoom and then only have seminars, well, that's going to change their mindset. And, you know, people pay for their education. They're they're going to behave more like customers. And fundamentally, the customer wants to do their education in order to get a job and have secure the life that they want. So I think there's an awful lot of thinking and rethinking to be done. Um, I'm still hugely positive. I think that it's terrible what's happened to so many people. But if we can look at this and reflect and hit the reset button and say, right, okay, how could we do this differently? then there are opportunities out there with people with the right mindset.
1: Um, I think so. Like I, I have this quote in one of the, the decks. I Sometimes I you know give talks and there's a quote from Abraham Lincoln that I love that kind of summarizes our thoughts here, which is the best way to predict the future is to create it. That's what we've got to be able to go do. And that requires a business agility. It requires a structure to scale that vision, that strategy, so that you can create it together and, and like you said, to experiment to see what's working because what we're working with is is humans at the end of the day, and we're always changing. The opinions of what we want are changing at any given moment, at any given moment of the day. And to be able to stay that nimble and adjust and adapt, that adaptability, hugely important and I think you're right. If you are not in the thick of that and going through those changes and thinking through how to th- work differently and more adaptably, you're not going to make it. Like, I, I don't think you have high probability of success.
0: I would agree with that. I think, and you know, I, I can give you a little bit of an example of that. I'm, I'm not going to name the company, but we went into an organization, this must have been about a year and a half ago, and they had a, quite a deep-seated problem between marketing and sales there was very much a silo um was a resentment um i don't think that they quite trusted one another mm. um and it was frustrating because there was great people on both sides but they, they did there was no conductivity there definitely there was no connection and we were discussing this with um uh, a team and i just chucked out the idea um why don't we get rid of both departments and they went, well, sack everybody. I went, no, no, keep everybody. I said, Let's just not call them, because here's one of my bugbears, right? Marketing and sales. That doesn't really tell the story, does it? It's marketing for sales. Otherwise, why are you doing it? You, know, you market to generate sales.
1: Yes, so, it's lead gen. That is the function. Agreed.
0: not marketing and sales. No. Mm-hmm. So, I said well, if we took that on board why don't we get rid of the both tiles and call them the growth team and give them one objective which is a common objective which is fundamentally to grow sales but they use their different skill sets in order to map that out and that's what they became and they are now the growth team and they all sit together and yeah a few people left the company not going to lie but they are now on highly effective and their metrics are much more focused on what's helpful to the organization at the very top level rather than X number of marketing qualified leads against X number of sales qualified leads and, and then directors arguing who's not doing their job correctly because we're not seeing that translating into sales. So it's it was just a different way of looking at a problem. So it's about that clear Christian saying, what's the job to be done? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and when you ask yourself that, and and where you can get to with OKRs at a team level, teams should be defining their own mission and purpose. What are we here to do? What's this this team here for? Why do we exist? What do we want to achieve, and when do we want to achieve it? And if teams think like that, they're almost building an infrastructure that's very similar to the way the OKR structure itself works, right at the top of the organization, but it re emphasized purpose. And as long as it's aligned to what the company's purpose is, these teams start to have power, and when they do that, they start to behave autonomously and ask each other really challenging stuff and push each other a bit. And that is, I know when that happens, is uh, um, you get this. One of one of our branding guys was talking about you like to get people feeling like they're flying, you know, and that's really what we're trying to do. From a, we want the teams and organisations to feel they're absolutely flying. You know, I don't know if you've ever had a job where. Um, and hopefully you have it right now. But um you love doing what you do, and there's just a sense of momentum that you think that you're unstoppable. You and your team can achieve anything. Um, and that's it can be a sport as well. You know, I think all of those analogies are really, really powerful because people respond so well to being part of something that's successful, and that that culture then translates and people want to join successful teams. So very difficult to cultivate, but I do think that OKR's done well are a huge building
1: block into doing that yeah i I, th- I would agree like i think when someone's flying and i have experienced it in my life i would i would i would say you know to all the podcast listener yes i'm flying even right now it's really exciting because you know we're seeing success with our customers we're seeing success in terms of the business the growth of our teams it's wonderful. It gets, especially now though, it gets, it gets really difficult to stop working. (laughs) I think that's the current challenge. Honestly, I was talking to a good friend of mine yesterday evening and she, uh, she works at a really large company that I'm not going to name which. And she said, Jenny, something that you also need to be thinking about is, you know, how to empathize with folks who have different challenges from working from home and working in this new normal. Cause remote teams are probably going to be a mainstay. We've already seen tech companies say, you know, we're going to promote remote first from now on, like, even that they're going to basically shut down all of the, op- you know, the facilities that they've probably procured or rented out. Like that's going to be done. You know, you, you touch base on the current environment where people are tired you know, they're exhausted. I, I had another friend where, you know, I was going to talk about OKRs with her team. And she said in Australia, they have extended, you know, whatever the ordinance is for Melbourne. And the team got shook by that. And so, like, I, I guess a question I have for you, because you're working with teams and leaders and really big companies right now who are seeing accelerations in different places But they're also having to balance that with, well, what now with the individuals and teams where their capacity is maybe 10% of what it was? Or conversely, there are people who are working at 500% because they don't have anything else. You know, like this, they don't shut it off because they're maybe high performers. And they're just constantly on and you're like, you need to stop because you're going to burn out. Like, you just need to stop. What are you seeing in terms of, leadership, these large companies and how they're working with their teams and managers on staff to kind of make sure people aren't either over, overdoing it, you know? And what about the people who really, they've got so much going on that this is all they can do. And that has to be okay for right now. Like, are you hearing any conversation around the people part, of maybe okrs and and shaping okrs around how to make sure that our employee base is healthy is happy is engaged with our work and our mission even with the constrictions right because that's a thing like they're having to manage downsizing to to some extent probably and that's really scary for people like what are you seeing out there
0: okay i'll 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 start by talking about Because I think we're all discovering on this, but um, I'll start with something I learned about myself quite quickly on this. So I do quite a lot of presenting. Mm. Uh, I lecture at a local business school, and I'm quite used to doing presentations. And I get healthily nervous about it. You know, I'm, I'm anticipating it, but I'm. I was absolutely, but I had to do a call to 60 people on Zoom quite early into lockdown, and I was quite frightened. I was almost to the point where I didn't want to hit the connect button, and I did, and it went fine. But I had to start thinking to myself, what what was going on there that I'm so different that, and and then I started thinking about, well, what was the build up to me going and doing going to speak to somebody or doing a presentation to a board or running a workshop or whatever I was doing. And I thought, well, I'm probably going to get up in a hotel somewhere. I'm going to probably have breakfast. I'm then going to figure out the route that I'm going to take to the office that I'm in, but I'll probably map that out the night before. Um, I then get to the reception and then I can chat to the receptionist and then somebody comes up and then I chat to the person who takes me up in the lift and I get popped into a room and I set my kit up. People drift in and out, and I start talking to them. And this is all slowly but surely acclimatizing you to get used to what you just – to get you ready for what you're about to do. Mm -hmm. When we do this, it's very binary. It's like I'm in my kitchen. I'm now on the call with 60 people. So I've had to find different routines to get myself prepared. So what I'm seeing out there at the moment is there's a few things that we're not seeing – for example, I just done my first face-to-face workshop. We did it very socially distant uh, uh, in Southeast uh, England, just in, in Reading. And it was fantastic. And I forgot how good it is to actually have human beings in a room with you, interacting with you, talking to you, being able to read a room, read body language, see when people are a little bit fatigued, start spotting it. It's It's The level of connection, the conductivity, again, that you have with people is so much different. That can't be underestimated. So I think what we've got to do is we've got to find a balance. The other thing I've noticed, with uh, again, is there are a lot of subtle things happen in an organization that you don't see. So there are people, for example, who are pacifiers, people who are putting out little fires inside an office all the time. And they can do that by communicating and they can do that by reading the room and seeing what's going on. Whereas when you're in this environment, if you get a little bit of a spat, and particularly if people use email or Slack channels incorrectly, and you know, you can start to feel the tension building, but it's in a digital environment, those pacifiers haven't got a role because they're not seeing it. They can't go out there and figure out what that is or how do they put it out quite so quickly. So... And I think the other bit is um, people who then are your advocates, you know, the really positive people in the room, the positive people that are always saying positive things. If you're the sort of person that's not exposed to somebody who's really positive all the time, it could probably feel quite isolating and you might lose your sense of connection and purpose. So I think what we've got to be really careful of is if you've got a lot of self-starting execs who are brilliant and love Zoom and Think wow! I can go meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And I can cram so much in, and, and now I can actually. I mean, I, I'm in a situation now where I've got a client in New York, um, but I'm pretty much working till 10, 11 o'clock at night UK time to f- factor in Eastern time. Um, and that's I'm happy to do that, but it's not sustainable forever. So what I've realised is just change your working clock. Just become like a New York guy for the for a week. So now I'm just, I'm taking those five hours off before and I'm starting my working day when they're starting their working day. Mm. I think those are lots of new things that you can learn, how you can get better. But I really do feel that, you know, and you're right, certain people, you know, you could be living in a really small apartment, you could have two kids and it isn't conducive for you to do Zoom. So finding a balance and listening to people and finding what they're going to do. And I think that's really important, you know, that, that. You know, everybody talks in the OKR world about bottom-up. I think the reflections I would be doing as a large organization now is I wouldn't be sending out the same staff engagement survey that I always did. Mm. I would create a completely new one to say, you know, what have we learned from this? What could we do better? What have you missed the most? What can we do in the future to support you better working like this? You can do the IT, the infrastructure stuff. And I know there have been some absolute miracles pulled off by IT departments who've managed to get – thousands and thousands of people and, you know, I think brilliantly, but you've set the bar now, IT people, because you can't, the things that used to take months can now take days, um, which is quite interesting as well. So I think it's going to be a mixed bag, but I hope the opportunities to learn because I don't think that just because our political leaders want us to go back to the office, if it's economically not viable or it doesn't feel that we're going to have huge advantage. We've now discovered through this big work from home experiment that we can do different stuff in a different way. We're not just going to flip back just so we can keep preterm on alive.
1: What you're suggesting, which resonates with me and is actually what it sounds like uh, my friend's company is going to do is exactly that, is to reimagine how to take the pulse of the organization and its overall health and what employees need and for then the leaders of that organization to have a response to come up with a response. And it takes some creativity there. It takes probably some courage there to, to kind of get over, you know, maybe we aren't all going back to the office and having, you know, like an entire kitchen and a canteen and, you know, like some offices I've heard have gyms, like it's crazy. That may not exist anymore. And so then how do we as employers, attract good talent, retain them, grow them, uh, where the variability rests with the individual and their life situation and where they're working from. And then how do we then adapt, you know, to support them to do their best work and then contribute to that larger goal. And in doing so, through this transition, I think, through that learning because that's what I think you're ultimately advocating for is learning, is how can we learn about how we operate and how we can operate better? And I think this is all in service of what you and I have discussed before, this idea that's not new, but the exponential organization. And I'd like to, like, I guess, spend some time talking about that, that the internal mantra of a lot of the companies that you're talking with, old traditional business, are saying internally, We have to be a tech company now by virtue of all the things that we've experienced and what we're seeing in the market, what the demand is of this generation and future generations, that on-demand service and the ability to get what they need when they're asking for it. Can you discuss a little bit about what it takes to be that? Well, firstly, what is the exponential organization? And then what does it take to be that? Because I think OKRs are in service of that idea. I think you and I think so.
0: I would agree. I mean, I, I think from, from the outside looking in what a lot of old traditional businesses, they look at Silicon Valley and they see exponential growth where you're doubling in users every day. You know, it doesn't take very long for you to become hugely powerful and successful. And you can see that with many of the social networks. You look at people like Google, Facebook, the obvious candidates of mm-hmm. who've had exponential growth. Whereas more traditional businesses grow in a more linear way and they take time. So they've got to, they've set their systems up and the whole business models are around supporting this linear growth. Well, they're getting outflanked and outbeaten everywhere by new fintech is a great example of that. You know, mm-hmm. if you have a massive infrastructure of banking and then suddenly these new banks pop up and they're very agile and they're completely mobile and that tech's really cool and it connects with everything, and instead of it taking you two weeks to open up a bank account, you've done it in two hours, then you are now shifting away from all of the spend that you had on infrastructure. I mean, I recently worked with a university, and we were looking at a very large European bank. And the the question they asked, which I didn't really like the question that had set the MBA students, was how do we come up with a formula to which branches to shut? And I thought, well, it's a bit draconian, isn't it? And it's not very inspirational. You know, if I was on that team, I'm thinking, you know, people might lose their jobs. So I, I wanted them to phrase it much more on OKR and say, well, what is the job to be done? What, what is it that we can do and how can we continue to service? And then that opens up different kind of thinking because if you've got old or vulnerable people who still rely on a banking network or, or, or a human intervention, why can't we take the bank to the people? You know, so we can still have people in the same places, but we, we take them and we use the branch as a hub, but then they actually go out to people's homes and they show them how to use the tech and they take their iPads and other things and, and show them how it is. And, hey, while they're after doing that, why don't you connect them with their brother and sister who are maybe living in Madrid uh, and really change the facilitation? Why don't you be somebody that really enables a whole generation to actually unlock the potential of tech? Why can't that be a bank? doesn't have to be anybody else. It could just, it's just a different way of thinking about and the halo effect you get. You know, at the end of the day, Google doesn't sell search. Google sells advertising, the giveaway search. If you spun that on its head and you thought, well, I'm a bank, what can I give away that actually would add huge value to my customers, but also then lock us into they could see value for what I do offer. So to me, this is about a different type of thinking but also what it speaks to around OKRs is this planning and implementation cycle. You know, this one year, go away, do this huge um, strategic think, come back in and then just get to the first quarter and have that uh-oh moment where you say, well, actually we didn't achieve any of that. Or, I mean, how many strategic plans that were forged at the back end of 2019 have survived now? How many people are looking at whatever they decided they thought that 2020 was going to give them can now look and say, yeah, we nailed that. Nothing's changed. It's, everything's changed. And the level of disruption, the volatile, the uncertain, the complex, the ambiguous, as the VUCA goes, this is what you have to build into your organization. You have to build in the flexibility and agility to sometimes play the ball as it is on the field right now. Yeah. Because if you've ever played sport and you've done set plays and you're trying to figure out what the set plays. Guess what? When you go and actually get real opposition, they don't behave like you guys did in practice. They don't do what they're meant to do, and you have to adapt, and you have to come back, and you have to rethink things. So, I think the attraction, and and for hard facts, if you're going to look at where the, the shift of power is in the Fortune 500 and the biggest, most powerful corporations in the world, look where they are. You know, they're all within quite a few postcodes in Silicon Valley. So. What are getting there? And what do they have in common? Well, lots and lots of them use OKRs, and I don't think it's coincidence.
1: The exponential organization, adaptability for the win, and a change in mindset and leadership. Love this idea, this thread of being that conduit, you know, and, and seeing the electricity just kind of zap through an organization. I think this has been really excellent. I'm going to wrap up the same way. I think we should wrap up the same way that we... Do at the end of each of our episodes, I'm going to ask some quick fire questions if you're up for it.
0: Yeah, fire away.
1: What do you appreciate more or most about your team?
0: Honesty, man.
1: That's simple.
0: Yeah, brutal honesty. It uh, saves so much time, and it, that's really about trust. So mm. the fact that we trust one another um, allows us to be honest.
1: I think that's awesome because I'm wondering if people are thinking to themselves, would I have answered the same? You know, and does my is my team honest? Interesting. Very cool. That's a first. Um, second, what is your greatest dream and its associated deadline?
0: From a personal level, um, I want to continue doing what I'm doing and having a high impact, but on something that was perhaps for a, a greater good. You know, perhaps work with a big charity, do something really that would have a use all of my commercial thinking and apply it in a in a non commercial world. And I'm, more that I think about it is I'd like to transform education. I would like education to be about lighting a fire, not filling a bucket. I'm taking a quote from WB um the Irish poet. What we've got to do with young people is light fires and not just pour information into them and expect them to adapt. So I want to, I'd love to light fires in the education market.
1: Oh, I hope to see that. That is such a great dream. And I think, I think most people would say necessary. Last question. Can you describe an experience with a client where you were the most proud of the work that your team had done and then how the client really succeeded?
0: I think it's a recent one actually. And it's, um, it, it was a, a team that we were looking at that were, looked like they're all going to fall apart and they're all going to leave. This is about three months ago. I was getting side meetings where people were, knowing that they were going to try and oust certain individuals. And we've worked together with a combination of what OKR coaching and executive coaching to really turn that ship around completely. And now they are high performing. They're saying that and they're loving what they're doing. And from a commercial point of view, why do I know that's worked for me? Because they've referred me three new clients. And, you know, that that's that's I think anybody that operates in this sort of environment knows that, you know, you don't get a better testimonial than actually somebody introducing you to a new customer. Um, and that's, so yeah, I'm hugely proud in it and what I worked with a completely unforged team in that there was three of us had not really worked. We'd all worked as pairs, but we'd not worked as a three and we just really knocked it out of the park and, um, never ever lost sight and never ever got downhearted about what we were doing. And turned it all around, and now we have a terrific client, and a, who are doing fantastic things. So, yeah, so it's, it's been a. That's what makes it all worthwhile. Uh,
1: wow, I I can only imagine. Okay, I just kidding. I thought that was the last question. It's not. For those who are either thinking about adopting OKRs for the first time, or maybe they were unsuccessful in previous experiments. What would the one piece of advice or that one nugget of wisdom that you have based on that experience that you've got, what would you share with them?
0: Simplify. Less is more. Do one or two and don't rush it. You know, I think Covey says sometimes we confuse um, velocity with results. A lot of people go very, very quickly into OKRs, throw them out there when they haven't really nailed what they're all about. And and as Kobe says, if you put the ladder against the wrong wall, you'll just get to the wrong place faster.
1: True wisdom there. Peter, this has been such a great conversation. I've learned a lot. I admire what you and, and the team are doing over at Oxen. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's been an absolute joy.
0: No, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you very much for your time, Jenny.
1: That's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com slash radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.